Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. On Tuesday the 7th of June, the Social Partnership and Public Procurement Bill was laid before the Senate by the Welsh Government. This long-promised legislation promised to make Wales a fair work nation, improve public services, create statutory duties of social partnership and promote socially responsible public procurement. But how will it do this and what exactly does social partnership actually mean? Joining us to discuss this and much more are Nisreen Mansour. Hello Nisreen. Hi Matt. And Joe Allen. Hi Joe. Hi Matt. They were both policy officers at the Wales Trade Union Congress. So how exactly did we get to this point, when did the Welsh Government start to promise this legislation and have they worked in partnership with the trade unions to draft it? The idea first was written out in Mark Drakeford's leadership manifesto. So it's been around for you know four or five years now as a concept. And I think that initially it was termed simply as a social partnership bill. But I think that there was a very much an ambition at that time to strengthen social partnership, to make it a more universal concept in government and to bring in that procurement, that community benefits type angle into the legislation somehow. And over the last few years, it's really been down to officials and a handful of trade unionists who have been seconded into government for some in some cases and some of us at the Wales TUC working with the employer side as well to draft what that vision actually means in detail. And so, yeah, it's been it's been quite a journey to get here and incredible that it's happened during a pandemic. And now we've got quite a neat set of duties that will apply across the public sector to fulfil that strength and social partnership vision. Why did the Welsh Government think this legislation was was necessary? Yeah, as Mr. said, it, it first emerged as a legislative proposal in Mark Tradeford's manifesto. But in a way, it's kind of a formalising of a way of approaching government and decision making that's kind of grown up kind of semi-organically over the last 20 years since the uh, Senate has been in place. And what you've had is a bit of a mixed bag, really, of different social partnership structures that have built up in different policy areas. All of them have been a little ad hoc. You can never quite depend on how long they were going to stick around for, whether they be related to particular projects and whatnot. And some of them were, it was occasionally much stronger in certain sectors than in others. And you'd have various different forms of social partnership groupings pop up every now and again. So I think in part, at least, there was a desire on the part of Welsh Government and from the trade union movement, to be honest, to formalise what was already the reality up to some point. And in doing so, in, in putting it in on a statutory footing, it would give a firmer basis to the structures that already exist and help other parts of government that aren't perhaps as advanced in their social partnership work to catch up and kind of encourage them to create a level playing field across government. Obviously, we know that the trade unions be involved in the drafting of this legislation. To what extent have private companies, etc., and private bodies, the third sector, additionally to the trade unions, been involved in the shaping and the drafting of this legislation? There's been quite a few different ways. So one of them has been through this formalised secondment route. There have been both, um, you know, through the private and public sector routes, people seconded in to work on it. And then the other route has been through various social partnership arrangements. So particularly the cross-sector ones like the Workforce Partnership Council and the social, the Shadow Social Partnership Council, which at points was meeting like fortnightly in the pandemic, primarily to do with pandemic related issues, but partly also to support the bill development process. Um, and I think that's been really interesting because particularly bringing in that third sector into social partnership, recognising their role as employers has been, you know, a really good step as part of this process. Hi both. Um, 
I feel a bit of a fraud on this particular subject. Matt and Rich have been mentioning it in pods recently, and but I am a little bit out of the loop. Can you talk me through some of the kind of key headlines of the bill and what effect it will have on law in Wales and what was it trying to achieve in improving Welsh society? First part of the bill relates to something that has been mentioned in passing there, which is this idea of a social partnership council. And so if you go back to what the idea of governing and social partnership means, it means bringing government, private sector, employers, as well as trade unions around the table so that everybody has input at, an early, at the earliest possible stage into uh, policy development and decision making within government. So the first part of the bill really addresses the structures that are in place uh, as part of yeah, how those things work within Welsh government. So the Social Partnership Council will be made up of rep uh, nine representatives from the trade union movement, as well as nine representatives from the employer side and the Welsh government as well. Uh, and that has operated in a form, there's been this, this structure called the Shadow Social Partnership Council, which has been in place since early 2020. I think I had two meetings prior to the COVID pandemic kicking off, and then it met kind of fortnightly throughout the crisis. And that, I think we found that and kind of various subgroups that ran off that very useful ways of ensuring that the things that we were hearing, for instance, from our affiliate trade union members and their members in turn, made their way into the decision making processes that were taking place on like a fairly rapid basis during the pandemic and i'm also very conscious of the fact that as i describe it it sounds like the driest and most boring piece of legislation in the history of the world but i think this is one case where there is a huge gap between how academic and dry sounding a legislative proposal can be and the potential and I stress the word potential impact of the legislation itself in that respect because I think if you step back step away from the detail and I'm sure Ms. Rini is going to go way further into the detail in a second when we get on to parts two and three of the bill but if you step away from the detail it's about a way of working and I think you know we're doing a lot of work at the moment about like the future of devolution and future of work in Wales. And I think you could see this bill as represented in some ways, a kind of attempt by the Welsh government to form a distinctive and in some ways more European form of policy making and governance uh, here that distinguishes, distinguishes us from what's happening in Westminster and returns us to like a more traditional kind of social democratic process. You mentioned about the comparison with Westminster. Is it comparable with any other legislation around Europe? You know, is it based on something elsewhere? Yeah, it kind of is. I think Austria is the only other European state which has like actually legislated for social partnership, but it's very much the way of working in countries like Germany, the Scandinavian countries, France, and it also underpinned a lot of EU work in relation to how any matter that impacted on workers would be taken into account. The European Union has all sorts of agreements around, you know, making sure that both um, sides of the social partnership are always consulted, so union side and employer side. And that's one of the things that really pushed us to get this onto the statute books, you know, the impact of Brexit, removing that from UK-based policy, well, from any UK policy, because UK government obviously isn't in this space at all. And um, so we really wanted to get this onto the statute books in Wales quickly, sort of recognise what we were losing as a result of leaving the European Union. Thank you for that. As I mentioned, I I'm coming to this a bit cold. C can you just talk me through what we mean about working in social partnerships and what else is in the bill to uh, achieve that? Yes, this is like a memory test because... <laughs> 
not only is it quite a dry film, but also none of it has catchy phrasing in terms of the title. So I was like frantically scribbling stuff down. So social partnership working is effectively when you're taking any decisions as policymakers or as an organisation which has an impact on the workforce that you need to make sure that you're taking into account both sides of that power dynamic in a workplace. So it's the employer side and the workforce side and workers can only be fairly represented through their trade unions. We often get into debates about, oh, but workers can be represented through a staff forum that their bosses put together. And we're like, absolutely not. There are ILO agreements on this. Please do not bring in staff forums. It's very much trade unions and employer organisations. And so it's things like the CBI, the FSB, you know, the huge proliferation of employer organisations out there. And it works really well because it means then at the formative stage of policy development, you've got all the kind of key interest groups around the table and you're working out policy, which by and large benefits both sides as much as possible. It's not zero sum, but it just means that I think particularly why Welsh government like it so much is just that they're fully informed by what both sides are going to say. And so it just contributes to much healthier industrial relations. The other parts of the bill are the social partnership duty, and that will apply to all public bodies covered by the Future Generations Act in Wales. So we're bringing in Wales's other key bit of relatively dry framework legislation just to make it even more jazzy. And that will mean that public bodies, so councils and things, have to consult with their recognised unions when it comes to setting their wellbeing objectives and the steps they have to take to reach those. That's really taking that social partnership principle out into our public bodies and not just at that Welsh government level. And then the procurement duties is called socially responsible public procurement, which sounds really nice and is about strategic planning in relation to the wellbeing duties. So again, having that well-being approach rather than, you know, a kind of trying to find the best value for money on a very basic calculation approach to procurement and a particular set of duties around construction and outsourced workers. They're talking more about the kind of the quality of work implications of some of those things. We, you've talked about a lot of these duties that apply to public bodies, but to what extent will this legislation apply to private bodies and private organisations? So one of the big issues in the development of the bill itself and in what the legislation looks like is coming to terms with the relatively uh, tight constraints of the current devolution settlement. This is what scope the Welsh Government have to act on this. So inevitably, for that reason, the duties, for example, in Section 2 of the Bill, which Nisreen just outlined, relating to the social partnership duty, they relate to public sector bodies in Wales. There is scope to influence the Welsh Government's economic approach more broadly through the Social Partnership Council and through the various forums that we have to engage with the economic department within Welsh Government. So there is a role for social partnership there, but where this bill primarily focuses is on how the public sector develops its policies and strategy. Well, having said that, the procurement section, of course, relates to, you know, given the nature of the devolution settlement, inevitably a lot of policy pressure gets piled into procurement and it carries a lot of weight in terms of the attempts to influence the private sector. But we have to be realistic in that sense in terms of how much of the private sector in Wales actually engages with Welsh Government on its contracts. And there is, so there is a limited scope there. But just kind of on a related point there, there is a critique of the social partnership approach sometimes, which is that it leads to a kind of wishy-washy approach where 
it's all compromise and there's no kind of decisive action and it in some way limits the ability of the trade union movement to properly push for its goals um, through other means but i think what we would say as a as a defense of it in that sense is that capital and private employer interests are always round the table in decision making within government whether their representatives are physically there or not the threat that there is of the withdrawal of capital particularly when it comes to like things like foreign direct employment is always in the back of policymakers' minds so i think there is always going to be a case for us to be around the table and the social partnership uh, approach helps to us to have a much more open and constructive engagement uh, in a way that otherwise I don't think would be possible. Well, I mean, the public sector is not an insignificant amount of employees within Wales either, is it? We have quite a significant public sector. But I was, I was going to ask you, Nazreen, to what extent do you think this legislation will actually end up applying to private bodies through the role of the sort of Welsh government's economic contract? That relies on us as social partners really getting our head around the potential of the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act and that prosperous Wales goal in particular. So it's about how do we create very kind of ambitious strategic aims for Welsh Government, which do guide particularly the economic contract working and also the conditions they attach to grant funding. You know, the economic contract is all about stretching what businesses can do, but I think we also see a potential for grant funding in relation to setting red lines. So I think something that we'll be looking to table at one of those initial SPC meetings will be something like, how do we make sure that Welsh Government funding isn't going to employers that are hostile to trade unions, because that's so central to the definition of fair work. And it's very much about how do we create the right climate for fair work? You know, we're not saying obviously that all employers have to recognize a union because that would be a very strange way to go about unionizing the Welsh workforce and not get the outcomes we want in terms of having an engaged and active workforce in their unions. But instead it's about what they can do to kind of cultivate that fair work, that open to unions environments through their levers and grant funding and the other types of business support they do is absolutely key to that. I think on the economic contract, that's a really good example, as I think there's a fairly big gap as it currently exists between some of the rhetoric around the contract. If you were just to briefly engage with the idea of the economic contract, you would, to begin with, think that it was a contract, and it's not a contract. As Nesreen was saying, it doesn't place conditions on employers. It is just forms uh, serves as a gateway to uh, people who are seeking funding that they have to pass through a series of tests before they can access the later stages of support from business well. So I think that is a really good example of an area where we'd be keen to push for a much kind of stronger and clearer policy approach. Equally there, there are issues around accountability and transparency with the economic contract. We, for example, don't really have much insight due to uh, what we sometimes think are slightly spurious uh, uh, commercial confidentiality claims around who has signed a contract and what the terms of those contracts are. So, um, yeah, that's a really good example of somewhere that we think we would hope to make progress through the social partnership structures in the near future. Just because I can hear sort of Rich shaking his head at me because I haven't explained exactly what the economic contract is, wouldn't you be able to sort of give just a broad overview of sort of what I meant when I asked that question? Oh, I can hear Welsh Government officials just waiting with bated breath for what we're going to say. (laughs) Essentially, it's like an improvement 
framework that government agrees with a business that they've agreed to fund and a relationship manager employed by Welsh government manages that sort of discussion so they will ask the employer and they will ask the employer only so they won't get that ratified by the union you know what do you do in relation to fair work what do you do in relation to health and well-being and so they want that reassurance that something is happening and they're moving with the contract now to sort of try to stretch the employers a bit to say well you're doing this could you say pay the real living wage within two years they're asking those kind of more pushing questions but it's not the funding they receive isn't contingent on uh, you know even meeting the conditions of the contract let alone those stretching targets and it's very as Joe said it's quite opaque you can't see any of these contracts you don't know who's got one so I think we really want to see some changes there. Thank you Ms. Veen. I suppose going back to the bodies to which the legislation does apply what do you envisage the penalties would be for sort of non-compliance or would there be penalties at all? A, a lot of it is about greater transparency. So it's what we've learned from things like the economic contract. When you don't have transparency, you can't challenge and you can't work with government to challenge certain behaviours within public bodies. When you've got X amount of local authorities engaging with their unions on a particular issue and you haven't got one or two, you need to be able to have the transparency around that to work out what's happened. So reporting back on the social partnership duty is absolutely key to that. And those reports will be signed off by the union. So that's the kind of model we want to see throughout government when they're making any kind of workplace intervention. What's really interesting are some of the procurement duties around responsibility sitting with the contracting authority or sitting with that when you've got a supply chain sitting with that contractor at the top of that supply chain in relation to particular clauses they've got to put in. So, you know, it sounds so basic, but the idea of a primary contractor in a big construction site being responsible for non-minimum wage payment down their supply chain is just, you know, a massive step because there are huge problems with minimum wage underpayment in the construction industry. And at the moment, what the Welsh government, public bodies, they're not really thinking in that way and they're not really able to act against some of that. So having all that reporting back into government, having social partners scrutinise those reports, that is the first step to getting, you know, a handle on what is actually going on, first of all. I think maybe then we'll be in more of a space to think about what can penalties look like. Obviously, with what's happening with public finances and things, we're not in the position to be saying financial penalties at all. That just wasn't an area we were comfortable with. So it's, it's about that transparency. It's almost like a naming and shaming approach, I think, to some of this, first of all. What this highlights is, um, in some of the ways that it's been, the bill's been discussed at some of the initial committee evidence sessions, is that it places an additional burden on these public bodies. But what I would want to stress as well is the extent to which it places a responsibility on trade unions, on the other social partners, and on kind of Welsh civic society more generally, in that it's going to produce a lot more information and openness about how decisions are developed and how they're taken within these public bodies. So in a way, it represents a challenge to the rest of us to actually engage in that material and build up the capacity within our organisation to be able to engage with the information critically that is coming out and to push for improvements. And I think that's something that we're just only now really reckoning with on our side is kind of the scale of the challenge that it, it presents to us. And yeah, I, th I think there is, there will be a sense three, four, five years down the line of needing to assess what role and how effective we've been in holding those public bodies to account, because there is a real danger that unless 
there is that capacity and that ability to analyze what's coming out um, unless that's there then all that this legislation will produce is a whole load of new pdfs if i if i can pick up on that then joe because a couple of questions i've got now and i'll put them roll them together what do the welsh government believe the value of improving public sector procurement practices are and secondly a little bit what you were saying there joe about what's already out there some of this just from what we've talked about tonight uh feels as though we're already objectives looking at objectives under the well-being of future generations act is that a fair call if it is i'll probably have a follow-up so i think in terms of the value i think that's very much defined by the social the future generations act goals the well-being goals so it's it's not just about fair work at all and it's not just about you know the prosperous wales goal it's about each and every one of them it's about healthier wales it's about um, you know the environmental impact of procurement and I think that it's about being able to put that weighting into procurement evaluation is a big step for Welsh Government because we've been having a lot of discussions over the years about you know oh well can you put in um, objectives around training around real living wage around all sorts of standalone um, you know aspects of well-being but actually this will now first of all, set the well-being objectives as the kind of primary emphasis. And then second of all, it will mean that authorities, public bodies are, are taking that into account throughout their procurement processes, not just in relation to, you know, construction pro projects. And, you know, I think the community benefits approach was really, really ambitious when it came out. But I think it's about that next kind of step with some of this, you know, it's almost it's a the Welsh iteration of that local wealth building approach. So from a kind of legal perspective the duties under the act the social partnership duties they've ended up being placed under the well-being of future generations act as a result of this kind of legal meltdown i think that it was within welsh government as the bill was being developed about how we could legislate in this area without overstepping the mark constitutionally and i think we've seen in the last couple of days uh, how much of a potential bear trap all that is and so there is now a, a role for the future generations commissioner's office in a way that there wasn't when the bill was first being developed but if i draw on the experience that we had of working with the social partnership council throughout the pandemic that was a lot of relatively short-term decision making well in some cases extremely short-term decision making um, on day-to-day -day policy issues in a way that the future generations office obviously takes a broader view so um yeah I, I think there will be a distinction between the two but i think also in terms of how we will analyze and look at the success or otherwise of the bill there are things that we can learn from the past few years of how the future generations uh, act has been brought into place and the kind of relatively uneven ability of public bodies to get up to speed with that you mentioned the social partnership council there during covid can you give us a quick snappy definition of what that is and what it does the social partnership council is a group made up of representatives from the trade union movement from welsh government uh, from public sector employers and private sector employers so people like the cbi the fsb and then during covid we had all the commissioners were in there as well 
And what they had was on a weekly and then a fortnightly basis, regular briefings on what the state of the response was, both in terms of the health response and the economic response to the COVID crisis. And those groups and individuals were able to feed quickly into the decision making at the very top level. So it was chaired by the First Minister um, and various ministers were there, depending on what was under discussion that day, were able to feed information into the decision making process very quickly at a high level. Thanks for that. How, how future proof is this legislation? Is it capable of dealing with changes in the world of work and the change in nature of the workplace? My answer to that is I'd hope so. What I would say is that it is fundamentally a way of working rather than a, an overly prescriptive form of how decisions must be taken. And I'd go back to what Nisreen was saying earlier about the examples that we have from around Europe in particular. Um, you can see the kind of countries where social partnership is the default way of working in Scandinavia, in Germany, uh, in some of the central, other Central European countries like Austria, etc. These are countries associated with uh, lower levels of inequality, um, a relatively good track record in responding to changes in the in that take place in the workplace. For example, I think. Denmark is often looked to as the example of how best to deal with the challenges around automation and driving up productivity in the workplace while still protecting workers' terms and conditions as well as their, as their jobs. And I think one of the, the challenges that is often made about social partnership is like, oh, well, where are the actual concrete examples of, of where this has worked? And I think, uh, ironically enough, given what we've said earlier on about the difference between this as a way of working in contrast to Westminster, the one time that this Conservative government has worked in social partnership was during the development of the furlough scheme, which is the one thing that everyone can agree with, with was actually quite decent as a part of the policy response. So that furlough scheme, which itself was built on this, uh, this scheme that Germany introduced in response to the financial crisis in 2008, that was thrashed out. It came from a TUC policy position paper. They brought in the CBI, the other employer bodies, and it was the one time where that seemed to work well. And you would have thought that the lesson from that is, oh, this seems quite good. We should do this more often. And that's the lesson that we've taken, but it's absolutely not the case in Westminster. So there are these tangible benefits. And as I say, I, I think we see it as a way of working rather than a prescriptive sense of, you know, who's in the room and, uh, you know, who sends papers to who and that kind of stuff. Um, just on that question, I was just going to say, in terms of future proofing it from our side, there is a bit of an organising challenge just to make sure, you know, in bodies like our councils and our health boards, trade unionism is really well established. But we'd always need to make sure that, you know, when new public bodies are created, that we're unionising those too, because I think unionisation, good industrial relations are such a core part of public services in Wales. And they're like, they're part of the foundations of this bill, which is about better public services. It would be remiss of us to have you both here and not talk about the news that came out recently about the UK government stating that they would seek to repeal uh, the Trade Union Wales Act. What was your assessment of that? I would say rather sneaky announcement, Nisreen, would you agree? It was such a fun Monday evening, getting home from work and then, um, yeah, seeing an email about it. What a treat. They, they had made this threat before when the Trade Union Wales Act was passed, so you know, in some ways we're reassured that maybe this is just a sort of something that they say and are really not in a position to dedicate parliamentary time to. 
but we are worried that it's the signs of a very hardline interpretation of the Wales Act and of industrial relations being reserved, and particularly the idea that any reference to trade unionism in Wales law, Welsh law might be now challenged. And I think even if we don't see that primary legislation that they were talking about, I think we're worried about the impact that this will have on the culture in Welsh government, the confidence they've got to propose legislation in this area. There's already quite a lot of nervousness around that type of thing, and we just don't want to see it made that much harder. Yeah, I think it's been really interesting as well to see the response over the past couple of days within Wales to this. Given that it was kind of tucked away within some kind of exchanges of letters between Welsh Government and Westminster, that this was always the position of Westminster, and they've said, when we have parliamentary time, and it's been the case that they haven't found the parliamentary time within the last five years. So it might well be, fingers crossed, the case that they don't find the parliamentary time between now and the point at which they're, they're turfed out of office. But the thing I would want to stress is that there are two components to this. There's the, the devolution of constitutional questions which it raises, and then there's the direct issues that it raises through the repeal of the Act itself, which are about workers' rights and the kind of concrete things about workers' rights. And the, the Act deals with the issues of, you know, facility time within the devolved public sector and the threshold for ballots and that kind of thing. And so what I would like to stress is that in the response to this, the challenge for us kind of in within the trade union movement and on the left in Wales is to think about, yes, it's important to engage in the constitutional arguments and what this means, but some of it, some of the responses we've seen have been like, oh, well, this is obviously makes the case automatically for independence now, and we'll see you in Wrexham on Saturday and that kind of stuff. <laughs> but what I would stress is that there, that constitutional process is always going to work its way out over a fairly long period of time, like within the medium term. But there are concrete things on the workers' rights side of the discussion that you can do today, which are if you're not in a union, you join a union. If you are a union member, you become active within your branch and you organise and you get involved in those broader discussions about, you know, the constitutional future in Wales through your trade union. It frustrates me in a sense, that so much of the airtime around it is taken up around the immediate constitutional issues and relatively little around what the concrete stuff that people can do now and they can take action on now, particularly in the light of, you know, where we all were last week with the RMT being out on the picket line as well. You're not going to like my, my next uh, point then, Joe. I was just going to say, going back to the constitutional elements of it, it might be worth trying to just outline what the Welsh trade union legislation does and, and why the UK government want to repeal it yeah so the the thing there they were attacking and they are you know the majority of welsh workers will be affected by the regulations they're trying to introduce around this is the idea that when industrial action is taking place like it was with rmt and network rail in wales last week that you can bring in agency workers then to cover striking workers shifts um obviously we're opposed to that for lots of reasons it's anti-union it undermines strike action it's will be a very difficult position for those agency workers to be in and also it's dangerous it's not safe you can't have people brought in to suddenly do do a job overnight as PO learned when they tried to do just that and you know grant shops was taking a very different position on that at that point and the other things the trade union act did was well it was repealing what the trade union act in the uk was doing 
to the entire workforce, but just in the devolved public sector. So again, it's very focused on devolved public sector where Welsh Government, where the Senate does have competence. So it was about check-off time, uh, check-off, sorry, and facilities time, making sure that unions didn't have to reach some sort of ridiculous threshold to take strike action, making sure that we could still check off um, people's uh, union subs from their wages and things like that. So it was remedying the anti-union legislation that had been introduced by the UK government, but they just seem very much on a path now to do as much anti-union activity in the short amount of time that probably got left. Just on the, yeah, on the constitutional point now, I think one of the reasons why the UK government feel emboldened to go down this repeal, and it's almost like counter-attacking repeals one assembly, uh, one parliament against the other, but the reason they feel empowered to do that now is that the Trade Union Wales Act 2017 was passed under the previous devolution settlement and the previous Wales Act. And then when the subsequent Wales Act came in, it established industrial relations as a reserved matter at UK level. And that's that point that the UK government felt uh, emboldened to start issuing these threats. And they've been doing it quietly behind the scenes and now publicly in the last week. There's an argument that can be made here that moves like this sort of do expose the powerlessness of the Welsh government to protect workers, you know, even if it seeks to implement legislation such as the social partnership legislation we've been discussing. Do you think that this does expose the sort of powerlessness of the Welsh government if the UK government are determined to undermine workers' rights? I think there is a discussion to be had around where employment rights sit and this is a discussion that is very much underway within the trading movement so we at the end of last year we set up a commission on the future of work and devolution which has been headed up by professor Jean Jenkins who's a professor of employment law at Cardiff Business School and the idea is that I think we felt as a movement that there was a need for us to be able to engage in the discussions around what the next stage of devolution might look like and the discussions you know that have been had around independence uh, and we need to bring all of our 48 affiliates along with us in that discussion which is a you know fairly challenging process at the best of time but we've got a really good uh commissioner in professor jenkins uh it's very thoughtful and a good uh panel of advisors working with her as well it's a, i mean it's been, it has been very clarifying the last week in terms of bringing to the forefront those issues about the relative weakness of the Welsh government's position but do you jump straightforwardly from there to saying well in that case let's devolve employment rights I think these issues all have to be carefully considered there are huge kind of practical matters for people at a workplace level and their trade unions to consider and equally it's not completely clear that that is the uncomplicated will of uh, the public. So there's a lot to be considered there. Uh, but yeah, no, it definitely does highlight the relative weakness of the Welsh government. So I think it definitely exposes a tension between what should be the very clear reserve powers model and what that means in practice. I think it shows how politicised the constitutional issue has become. It doesn't make any sense for the UK government to legislate to make it harder for like Carmarthenshire Council bin workers to take industrial action that really has nothing to do with the UK government and it's you know it's a very strange priority so I think it's all become just so messy and political but I think that 
yeah this some of this needs to be worked through and obviously you know we know that if there was a different uk government we'd be in a very different position with this and we do want to test some of those ideas about the constitutional boundaries so thinking about the public health implications of unfair work that's something we're really interested in like we'd love to see a full sick pay scheme for social care workers that type of thing because i think we do think maybe the boundaries can be can be stretched a bit more and we should kind of ignore UK government when they're just putting silly threats and expansion memorandums, although I feel like I'm aggravating the situation now. <laughs> Thanks, Fannisine. Um, well, you know, given that you've brought up the sort of devolution in the future of work report, do we have any update on when we can expect the major findings from that, Joe? Yeah, there are, the plan is that that work will be published uh, by October of this year, and that is, uh, but that's been set up as an independent commission, so it's not automatically the case that that would be adopted by the TUC as its position, but that then would go to a meeting of our affiliates to, yeah, to discuss the uh, outcome of that. It's been really great to have you on. Before you go, I was just going to ask if there's any other major announcements from the Wales TUC we can expect over the next year, any interesting work you're doing that you want to promote? Um, I think follow up to the June the 18th cost of living rally, the work we're going to be doing around that, I think should be quite exciting. Um, we're very keen to see uh, greater collective bargaining across Wales, much higher union rates. We've had a tremendous boost after the RMT strikes last week. I think it really kind of woke people up to realising the importance of joining a union. And um, yeah, we're trying to get the phrase summer of solidarity up rather than summer of strikes. So definitely tweet about that rather than on the strikes. Joe, is there anything you wanted to promote? Yeah, I would just flag because I can hear uh, Shav, our General Secretary's uh, voice in the back of my head, that the recent ONS figures on trade union membership in Wales were really positive. We had 33,000 extra members uh, this year, and we were the only part of the UK that or, uh, that registered that growth. So you could, if you were being very kind of boosterish about the Welsh Government and the social partnership structures that they've already been put in place, say that we're seeing this bill working already. But I do think that there is cause for some sense of encouragement in the movement that, that, that yeah, there is. And I think particularly last week and the, the what we saw around the RMT and the ability of Mick Lynch to go on telly and consistently cut through the nonsense in the in the right wing media and to get that message across. I think that's been a, a huge shot in the arm for the movement. We run the trade union finder tool online and I think it's up by 800% the searches for that tool uh, in the last week alone. So yeah, there are really some good kind of signals of hope for the movement and uh, yeah, long may that continue. Thank you so much to both of you for coming on. If people want to hear more from you, where can they go and find you on Twitter? Joe? Uh, I am Joe underscore underscore, I think maybe a third underscore Alan, uh, because I think the footballer Joe Allen had already got there ahead of me. Well, you give me hope, Joe Allen. Nisreen, where can we find you? I'm at Nisreen underscore Anna. And you can also follow the Wales TUC account, which we're often tweeting on too. I think it's at Wales TUC. Great. Thank you both again for coming on. If you've enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please don't forget to find us on Twitter and Facebook at Here I Pod or go to our website, www.walespolitics.com. Thank you for listening to Here I. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.